Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak. Your word is your, your, the Bible is your very word to us. And we pray with your Spirit's help to be able to see your word, hear it, and receive it into our hearts to be transformed by it. This is a very familiar parable. These stories are very familiar. But we pray that our familiarity with them will not cause us to gloss over them. Challenge us afresh to keep living for your joy. We pray this for your glory and your joy at work in us in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2004, 74-year-old Mary Grams was on her, her family's farm doing some weeding in the garden. In the process of pulling up weeds, she lost her wedding ring. She searched and searched and was devastated when her search turned up empty. Embarrassed by this, she kept the news from her husband and went out and bought a cheaper replacement ring to hide the loss. Fast forward 13 years, and now her daughter owns the family farm. One evening, Mary's daughter decided to have some vegetables with their dinner. She went out into the garden, plucked a carrot, noticed it was unusually lumpy. Bringing it into the kitchen, she began to scrub it when, lo and behold, the ring was on the carrot. You could say that Mary got an extra carrot with her diamond ring. Thank you. Mary had lost her ring, and then she found it again, and she rejoiced. Something was lost, and it was found. And I think we all have stories like that, right? The wallet that we thought was in our pocket, the keys that we thought was in our bag, It seems like every week in our household, the adults misplace their mobile phones. The more priceless the lost object, the greater the joy when it is found. Like the mother who ran up to me in a panic when I was working at the checkout at Coles, frantic that she had lost her four-year-old son. And when she realized that he was just a few meters down the corridor, there was relief, there was joy, there was hugging and kissing And then the two walking off securely, hand in hand. See, when something precious was lost and is found, we rejoice. Or you think we would rejoice. You see, in today's parable, there are lost things that are found, and there is rejoicing and joy. But not for everyone. And the reasons for the non-rejoicing, the reasons for the grumbling are reasons which actually might be festering in our own hearts. See, in our last sermon today in this short series in the parables of Luke, we might think that these parables are speaking about joy, but as we open up the first few verses, we see the context of these stories, and we see that these parables are actually a slap in the face to this group known as the Pharisees. So you have a look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, We open up and what we think, well, what I think is actually a genuine grumble. Have a look again at verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Tax collectors and sinners, they are the worst of the worst. Tax collectors were Jews who were traitors, working for Rome and often getting rich and fat on their greed and the money they collected. They were immensely powerful and and had the security of Roman guards with them. So you imagine walking down the street with your family 
and you stumble upon the tax collector's booth. And he says, right, this is how much you owe. You search your pockets and you realize that you don't have enough. And the tax collector would then say to his Roman guards, right, seize that man's children and his wife, sell them off into slavery, and take this man as well, and sell him off into slavery, and then you will have enough for tax to be paid. See, this is what these tax collectors were like. The modern-day equivalent, I suppose, of these men would be the drug pimps standing outside the local high school trying to get teens addicted to their wares. And here was Jesus sitting with them, eating with them, receiving them, welcoming them. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. How can anyone be in the company of these sorts of people? It is not right. Now, in response to this setting and this accusation, Jesus tells three stories. Notice in verse 3, he tells this parable, parable singular. He tells them three stories, but they are considered one parable. Each of them, each of these stories have the same theme. Now, the first story focuses on a shepherd. He has 100 sheep, but notices that he notices that one of them is missing. Right, sheep are known to wander, so he leaves the 99 in an open field, a bit of a risky move, to go and search for that single lost sheep. Now, if you're familiar with sheep farming in Australia, you'll probably wonder what is the big deal with one lost sheep. Right, in Australia, sheep farming is done in the thousands. Losing one isn't such a big loss. But compared to the first century of smaller herds, losing one sheep was actually a rather big loss. So the shepherd sets off in search for this lost sheep. Now, the first story emphasizes the need for the search. Something highly valuable has been lost. The shepherd searches until he finds it. So far, so good. Something lost was lost and is found. But now, notice what the shepherd does next after finding the lost sheep. Two extraordinary things happen. First, he picks up the animal and pops it on his shoulders. The average sheep back then weighed around 50 kilos. And if that isn't surprising enough, look at the over-the-top reaction in verse 6. Right? After finding the sheep, he brings it back. He calls up his neighbors, and then he throws a massive party. You imagine the conversation with the Pharisees. What man among you, having a lost sheep would not go and search for it. Well, all of us would. And who then, when he finds it, comes home, brings it home, calls all his friends together for a party to rejoice at finding that lost sheep? None of us would do that. That seems weird. There's something a bit strange about this celebration. But then move on to the next story. A woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. A silver coin was a drachma equal to around $300 in our money today, right? That's quite a fair bit to lose in your house. Realizing she's lost her coin, she lights a lamp and sweeps the house, searching diligently until she finds it. Now, this story seems to emphasize the nature of the search. The first story about the sheep emphasizes the need for the search. This one emphasizes the nature of the search, right? She lights a lamp. 
for best visibility, sweeping the house, searching diligently. She looks high and low to find what was lost. A few years ago, we had something very precious in our household go missing. Janessa's little woo-woo, a soft, plush dog. She's got this large one and the little one in the picture, and the little one used to accompany Janessa everywhere she went, especially to bed. So one day she's playing with it, she puts it down somewhere, and then she can't remember where she put it. My goodness, the amount of stress that went through the house over the next 24 hours, right? Calling up my in-laws to see if they took it home by accident, uh, turning the office over, getting salt leaders and clayers to come and look around the house with us, right? Opening up cupboards and moving everything around. That evening, Janessa went to bed in tears. Where's my woo-woo? Eventually, I found it, sitting on the bottom floor of her dollhouse. And once she found it, she rejoiced, reunited with her precious woo-woo. And you know what we did next? No, we did not throw a party. (laughs) We gave her a very firm talking to, Janessa, be very careful about this. Don't forget where you put it next time, Nessie. Sure, we were happy, but we didn't invite the neighbours over or the salt leaders and clayers over to celebrate. But this woman does. Again, the reaction here seems out of proportion, over the top. What is going on? Why is it? Remember, the Pharisees were grumbling that Jesus was welcoming tax collectors and sinners, eating with them, associating with them, getting to know them and befriending them. And so Jesus tells them these stories to illustrate the joy that God has when one sinner is found, when one sinner repents. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see how big that is? When one person repents, when when they turn away from living for their sin and they turn to Jesus to live for him, the whole of heaven rejoices. Everyone. All of it. God and his angels sing with joy. Kevin DeYoung, on this passage, made an observation, a personal one. I've noticed it as well. When something joyful happens, right? when you're with a group of people and all of a sudden something really funny happens and you're all belly laughing, right? No, not just a giggle, but you're really enjoying the moment, what do you do? You look around and you try and make eye contact with people because you want to share that joy. God does that as well. When a sinner repents, God looks around heaven and all of heaven rejoices with him. Now, if Jesus left the parable here, the main point would be fairly clear. The Pharisees are grumbling, but really they shouldn't be. Jesus is calling sinners to repent and rejoices when they do, simple enough. And then he goes on to the third story, one of the most famous in all of Scripture. And this story is different. Not only is there more detail, but there is an 
incomplete twist ending. So let's have a look through the story again. Read with me from verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Uh, Jesus introduces us to a family, a father with two sons. The youngest one takes most of the attention in the first half of the story. His request seems simple enough, but underneath it, there is a heap going on. See, it just sounds like a simple request. Dad, I just need some money, right? It's, it's, but it's not as though the younger son is saying to his father, Dad, I need some money for some expenses, right? The new iPhone X just came out and it's $1,000 and I want it. Or, you know, he's not saying, Dad, I want to take a gap year and, and backpack around tr- uh, Europe, so I'll need $10,000. Those requests are lightweight in comparison to what he's really asking for. He's asking for his share of the inheritance, roughly one-third of all that the father owned. One-third belonged to him, two-thirds belonged to his older brother. But an inheritance, by definition, is usually only given when someone dies. And that's how an inheritance works. So what is the younger son doing? He's effectively telling his father, Dad, I want to treat you as dead. You are going to be dead to me. And when you are dead to me, you need to give me my share of the inheritance. Now, what would you expect the father to do at this point? I think a normal father would probably beat their son. How dare you come to me with such a request and treat me that way? Treat me as dead? I'll beat you dead. All right? We know that will happen. What does the father actually do in this story? He does something utterly costly. He gives his son the share of the inheritance. A third of the property is sold, and the money is given to his son. It's a massive sacrifice by the father, and he does it. And then the young boy takes off, running away, cutting family ties, truly treating his father as though he were dead. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The word prodigal means wasteful. You see why this parable is often called the prodigal son. The son takes his share of the inheritance, and he wastes it big time. Money Alcohol, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No pleasure is withheld from his eyes. And soon enough, the money is gone. A famine hits the land, and he finds himself in poverty. He was living the high life, but his friends lasted only as long as his money did. And so desperate is his situation that he finds a job feeding pigs. Right, in the, to get an idea of how truly disgusting this would have been to the listeners. I I, I found a a news article in the week. Uh, The news article said that two Brazilian scientists were working on a way to turn cockroaches into edible flour for baking bread. They were drying cockroaches out, roasting them, grinding them down, mixing it with the flour to turn it into bread. That makes my stomach turn. That is disgusting. 
And that's what being around pigs was like for Jews. To be even near one was a horrific thought. Right? This boy has hit bottom. And he hits the bottom, and he discovers another, a whole other level of bottom to hit. Right? See, there's a famine in the land. He's got no food. His only job is to feed pigs. And in verse 16, we read that he looks at the pig swill. Right? He's jealous. This putrid swill that is being thrown to the pigs is better than the air that he is currently eating. He has now hit rock bottom with nowhere to go. And now it's now that we read that he comes to his senses and he makes a turnaround. You look at verse 17 onwards, he comes to his senses and he comes up with a desperate plan. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, you you notice in there that there are elements of repentance. He's realized he's done wrong. He he wants to turn back to his father for help. But notice how self-centered his plan is. First, he remembers that his father has heaps of hired servants who, in the middle of verse 17, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. His motivation to go back home seems to be because his dad has the food he currently lacks. And then notice in verse 19, he wants to come back and pay off his debt. Right? When you distill his plan down, it looks like this. Let me earn my way back. Right? Let me do good and earn my spot back home again. Right? Isn't that the way with all of our hearts? The constant temptation to try and earn our salvation, to pay God back for his mercy to us, to earn God's favor upon us by working hard. And so he picks himself up. He journeys back home, all the while knowing how deeply in trouble he is and hoping that maybe, just maybe, his father won't kill him. Remember, the law of Moses says that any child who is this disobedient, any child who has dishonored their parents this much, deserves death. And then in verse 20, we read that while the son was a long way off, his father sees him. Perhaps he had been sitting by the window each day, looking to see if his son would return. And now that moment had arrived. Now, what do you expect the father to do at this point? How do we expect him to respond? With rage. Worthless son. Punish him severely. Never A son shall he be again. And what does the father actually do? Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat 
and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father spots the son. His first reaction is compassion. Instead of justified anger, instead of pent-up rage, the father's first reaction is to not harden his heart, but to soften it. And then he runs and embraces his son. Two utterly astounding things happen here. First, in order to run, the father would have to gird up his loins. He would have to pick up his robe and tuck them around his legs so that he wouldn't trip. Now, in order to do this, that would mean showing off his bare legs, which was an embarrassment and a shameful thing for an old man. But he takes that shame upon himself, and he runs to his son. And second, he embraces him and kisses him. The word kissed him is literally fell upon his neck. The father shows his joy by greeting his wayward son and showers him with kisses, tender, affectionate kisses on his face and on his neck. And even before the son has spoken, there is already reconciliation. A relationship is being restored. You look at verse 21, the son begins his prepared speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But then he gets cut off. The son's words are an outpouring of his grief and repentance. But his father has already reconciled. And forgiven. The son wanted to come back as a hired hand only, but look at what the father gives him instead. He gives him the best robe. It's a a long, flowing garment. The son is given the best clothes to wear. He's given a ring. This particular ring usually contained the family seal. The son wanted to come back as a servant, not as a son. The father welcomes him back as a member of the family, as a son. He's given sandals. The son probably came back barefoot, right? Being barefoot is often a sign of deep poverty. The son goes from poverty to restoration. And again, in verses 23 to 24, the father's overwhelming joy at seeing his lost son returned. The son's return is likened to a resurrection. He was once dead and is alive again. He was once lost and is found The fattened calf, the celebrations. This is the picture we've been seeing over and over again in these three stories. God's delight that a sinner should repent sends rejoicing through the heavens. Now, if the parable finished there, it would be a simple triplet series of stories, each sharing how joyful it is when that which was lost is found. But here's the twist in this parable. It's another one of these weird endings. Let's pick it up from verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of them, one of the servants, and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. 
Remember, at the beginning of this parable, we were, at the beginning of this story, we were introduced to a man who had two sons. The younger son took up the airtime. Now the focus turns to the older son. And in comparison to the younger son, the older son is an absolute dream. Right? Hardworking, diligent, faithful. Right? The younger son served himself. The older son had spent many years serving his father. The younger son dishonored his father. The older son never disobeyed any of his father's commands. If you had to choose between which of these sons you would want as your own son, you would choose the older son. And the older son seems to have a lot to be angry about, not just because his father forgave his little brother, but now this feast? The party that's being thrown here isn't just some small Sunday dinner. It's more like a buffet banquet, an expensive celebration. Now remember... A third of the father's property has already been sold and wasted and squandered by the youngest son. So whose money is the father now using in order to pay for this massive, expensive celebration? It's the eldest brother's inheritance. More money being wasted on his little brother. And so the older brother stands outside, too angry, to face his brother, too worked up to join the party. And again, we see the father take the initiative to move towards his son. In the same way that the father moved towards his younger son with compassion, here the father again does the same. He moves to the older son with compassion. And in the ensuing ensuing argument, there's one line from the older brother that shows just how lost he is just as lost as his younger brother. From the middle of verse 28, read read with me again. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice he can't even say my brother, he says this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Notice now why he was so good, why he had obeyed all those years. It wasn't out of joy or love for his father. He was being faithful in order to get things from his dad. You see how much much like he was with his younger brother. The The younger boy wanted his father's things, and he got them by being bad. The older boy wanted his father's things. And he hoped to get them by being good. And see again the tenderness and affection of the father in verse 31. Literally, he says to his eldest boy, my child, you are always with me. Right? The eldest son is, son is angry to the point of being rude with his father. The father, however, does not respond the same way, but he responds with grace. He reminds his son that everything he owns belongs to his eldest son and that it is right and proper to celebrate the return of his younger brother. End story. That's it. The story then gets cut short. So at the end of verse 32, it's, it's a very strange ending to this parable. There's no closure. There's no happy ending. There's no ending at all. We're left with a whole bunch of questions. If you thought that seeing the, the Star Wars, The Last Jedi, would leave you with a bunch of questions, this story leaves you with more questions. Right? What does the oldest brother do? 
Does he soften his heart? Does he join the party? Does he walk off in a huff? We don't know. And that seems to be the point. The three stories culminate here. The the elder brother standing outside and we're left wondering what he does. Remember the context. The Pharisees were grumbling that Jesus was welcoming way with sinners. Now we see that they are the elder brother in this story. Jesus says it is right to celebrate. God celebrates the repentance of sinners. But they don't. They don't like how much God seems to be celebrating over them. So you notice in your Bibles, when you look at your Bibles or when you're looking at your phone, what is the title of this final story, right, from verses 11 to 32? What's the title of it, right? You'll see it's something like, in my Bible, the ESV, it says the parable of the prodigal son, right? The word prodigal, remember, means wasteful, to use your money or resources freely, recklessly, and extravagantly. And that description fits the younger son perfectly, But do you notice who is the most wasteful, the most reckless with his celebrations in these three stories? It's the shepherd who throws a party over finding one lost sheep. It's the woman who throws a party over finding one lost coin. It's the father who throws an extravagant party over the return of his youngest son, See, this is what God is like. God is the most prodigal of all. He celebrates wildly when one sinner turns back, when one lost son and daughter repents and returns home. His joy and celebrations would be considered reckless, and yet this is what God's joy is like. If you were looking for a way to describe God's joy, the word reckless would not come up, and yet this is exactly what these parables are teaching us, that God's joy is indeed reckless. It breaks convention. It surprises us with its generosity. It floors us with how abundantly it is poured out. And that's what the Pharisees don't understand. That's why they grumble when Jesus is welcoming tax collectors and sinners, because there is utterly surprising, overflowing, and generous joy to be shared when they repent. And they don't like that. So let me ask you, has it floored you? Has it surprised you? If you're not a Christian here today, or you're not sure, are you surprised by how much God's delight and joy waits for you? It doesn't matter how bad you have been. Maybe you would make the prodigal son look like a private school prefect. You can come to Jesus and find forgiveness. Repentance means to feel sorry and sorrow for your sin to turn away from it and to turn to Jesus asking for help. It doesn't matter how bad you have been. And it doesn't matter how good you have been. You might not be a prodigal at all. You might have grown up in church all your life. You might have had a fairly normal, loving, non-Christian family. You might be a real stand-up person. You might even say in your heart, I've never done anything as bad as that younger son. I've generally been a good person. Don't I deserve to be treated fairly by God? 
there you hear the echo of the older brother in your heart. It doesn't matter how bad you have been and it doesn't matter how good you are. We all need the Father's generous love for us. We all need his compassion. So will you come to him? Will you repent of your sin? And will you come and share the Father's joy? And if you are a Christian here today, let me ask you, did did you come to church today with the expectation that this place would be filled with joy? Maybe it's been a long time since you've felt that. Life gets busy and hard, work is demanding, travel is tiring, children have their endless needs and they just run you flat. Well, we should come to church each week with a massive expectation that this place be a place filled with joy. Why? Because this room is filled with repentant sinners who God rejoices over abundantly. The joy of the Father is something we need to keep sharing with each other. It's something we need to keep sharing with others. When we preach the gospel to others and when we see them bow their knees to Jesus in faith and repentance, we are sharing the Father's joy. Perhaps we haven't had this joy in a while because we actually have a heart like the Pharisees, a heart that trusts in our own goodness and righteousness, a heart that grumbles against God's free mercy and grace to those we don't think deserve it. Have you ever caught yourself saying these words? I've been a Christian all my life. I've never run away and treated you, God, like this prodigal son. I've come to church each week. I've given regularly. I've worked hard and lived morally. Why don't I get a fattened calf? Why don't I get acknowledged? Why won't you bless me, God? Maybe we haven't gone that far yet. But the heart of the Pharisee is only ever a few thoughts away. A heart that grumbles and despises that certain types of people are welcomed among us. Be on guard. Final application. If I had to ask you what you are most known for, what would you say? I know that... Lots could be said about me. Pastor Steve. Oh, yes, he's got that big bookshelf at home that Ben is envious of. Oh, yes, he's so into coffee and MasterChef. I'm not sure people would say, oh, Pastor Steve. Yes, he's a friend of sinners. See, the Pharisees wouldn't have grumbled if Jesus wasn't hanging around these sorts of people so much. If he was telling them the gospel and leaving them alone, they wouldn't have grumbled. He welcomed them. He received them. He ate with them. Treated them almost like family. And he told these parables as a way of not only telling them where God's heart is when it comes to the repentant sinners, but he also told them these parables as a way of warning them that they were not sharing in the same joy They were missing out. Like the elder brother who was too jealous and angry to join the party, they were in danger of missing the party altogether. So we stand outside the party looking in as well. We're invited to join it too. And let us keep inviting others to join it as well. Let it be known, Esselie Church, yes, they are a friend of sinners.
Let us be prepared to have a heart like Jesus. He, he says later in the Gospel of Luke that I have come to seek and save the lost. Let us be prepared to seek and find all kinds of lost people. Jesus came, he searched diligently for us, and when we repented, the whole of heaven rejoiced. There is joy to be shared if we are willing to tell others where the party is at. Let me pray. Father in heaven, it's been a long time sitting here in your word. It's been a big challenge. It is a familiar part of your word, but we pray that our familiarity with it will not breed contempt, but will breed fresh challenge. Help us to not to be aware, to be on guard of the heart of the Pharisee that can lurk within all of us, to grumble that your grace and mercy are so abundantly poured out to others, to grumble that we feel like we're missing out on being celebrated. Help us instead to have a heart like Jesus, to be friend sinners, to show them that they need to be saved through Jesus, and to share in your joy as they bow their knee before him. We pray this for your glory, the growth of your kingdom, and our deep-rooted joy. In Jesus' name, amen.